This is the Mitch Barnhart Podcast. Now from Lexington, here's the Athletics Director for the University of Kentucky, Mitch Barnhart. Welcome to the Mitch Barnhart Podcast here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, we've been uh, joined recently by uh, folks that have journeyed through the University of Kentucky and taken a different pathway to um, athletic directors' chairs around the country. And so we're we're so fortunate that we have a chance to visit with leaders in the industry. And uh, today we're joined by Scott Strickland, who was formerly at the University of Kentucky and is uh, now the Director of Athletics at the University of Florida. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be on with you, man. How are you? We're doing well. We're doing well as uh, as we look uh, into the fall schedule. A lot of things going on. We're getting ready to crank basketball up in less than a month, if you can believe that. And and so for all of us, the, the schedules are full. We appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to just to visit for a few minutes about the world of college athletics and how the how things work at the University of Florida and, and from your chair. So thank you. Absolutely, man. So, so let's just jump into it real quick. Uh, your journey. We we were talking before we started about the different pathways that so many folks have taken to get to be an AD. Um, and I think young people today look at these things and they say, "Man, there's got to be one clear cut path, and we check all the boxes and we can get there." And we've seen people come from a coach perspective and from a business oper business financial perspective operations, fundraising, your pathway was a little different and, and sort of walk us through how you got to where you are and the journey of Scott Strickland, Scott and Ann Strickland, and how'd you get there? You know, I, I knew I, I wanted to be around athletics and you know, like a lot of uh, young people today and, and uh, you know, you have an attraction to sports and, and you want to figure out a way, you know, most of us aren't good enough to, to compete to the point where we can make that a career but you still want to figure out a way to, that you can be around it. And so um, I, I went to school. I grew up in Mississippi. I went to school at Mississippi State. And somehow I had a, uh, through a friend of my brother's, knew of somebody who had, had worked in the sports information office and kind of learned a little bit about what that role was, might look like. And so I walked in the first day of my freshman year. All their offices were in Humphrey Coliseum there. I walked in and, and volunteered to work in the sports information office. And Literally, it was it was a bare bones operation. There were two full time people. They had a grad assistant, and anybody with a pulse qualified for a volunteer <laughs> position there. So I, I I fit those qualifications and was able to do that. And, and so literally, I worked in the athletic department as a student there uh, all four years. Got a business degree, uh, and and that was kind of my fallback. I thought, well, if this athletics thing doesn't work, I'm not able to figure out a way to get a job in athletics. I'll have a business degree, and I'll figure out something to do with it. And the uh, first year I was working there, um, I had uh, I'd actually had a chance to go to Knoxville. I think you were working there at the time. This is in 1989. I was. They were hosting the SEC basketball tournament. And, uh, in fact, I think that may be the, one of the last SEC tournaments, basketball tournaments that was hosted on a campus. And uh, I, was, I went to work as a volunteer for the league. Uh, and it was it was one of the more fun weeks of my life up to that point. And um, I came back and I just I realized all these different schools have all these different people working. There's all these jobs at other schools that people you know are, have made careers out of athletics. And I, and I remember asking our grad assistant, "How do you how do people get these jobs? What do you have to do? What's the path?" And he said, um, "You know, it's real simple. You have to have a degree 
and it doesn't matter what it's in, but you have to have a degree in something and you just have to find one person who'll give you a chance, mm-hmm. find one person who'll hire you. And it was, it was, that sounds so simple, right? But it was kind of an epiphany moment to me that, you know, okay, I'm going to get my degree in four years and then I'm going to try to uh, network and make as many connections and build as many relationships as possible with as many different people, uh, as many different schools as I can during the rest of my time as an undergrad. And, and so that led to, uh, you know, I met a lot of people uh, at the other schools and, well, when I graduated, Mississippi State actually had a position they were creating, an entry-level position there in the media relations office, and I was able to get that, and I did that for a year. And I just, But I just felt like I wanted to get other places and learn other, other ways to do things. And through those relationships, I had developed a, a, a connection with people at Auburn, David Housel, the longtime SID there, who became the AD, um, hired me. I was actually the last... Uh, person that David hired while he was still the, the media relations guy before he became athletic director. And, uh, and so I went to Auburn and uh, went from there to Tulane to Baylor and, and then obviously the university of Kentucky and all of that was in media relations or communications and some marketing mixed in there. And, and so to your point, there's not many ADs who come up that path. And I was very fortunate that, that uh, I was able to, to, use that as a pathway to, to get into more general administration. Um, I was there at UK for five years and that was a really special time. And, and one of the reasons it was uh, special is, is the team that we got to work with there. You obviously leading us. And then uh, some of the guys you mentioned, Rob Mullins um, was your deputy at the time and, and Greg Byrne and, and uh, Mark Cole uh, came in after Greg left and, and then there's so many other talented people there uh, at UK that I, I really felt like that was the the first time I'd been in athletics. I think counting my undergrad time about 15 years when I came to UK, but I felt like that was when I really and, and a lot of the credit goes to you, Mitch. I really started to understand how all the pieces fit together, and it wasn't just I wasn't just focused on my little area. I got to see how compliance fit and facility and planning and fundraising. And all the operations, all the different things that go into to, to creating the experiences that we do for our student athletes and our fans, it all kind of, I kind of started to see that picture at UK for the first time. Um, and uh, Greg Byrne, uh, he ended up as AD at Mississippi State and offered me a chance to come back and work with him. And that was the first time I got a chance to get out of communications and, and was kind of in a deputy role for Greg there at Mississippi State. And and then he left after a couple of years and, and I was fortunate, right time, right place to, to get promoted into the AD chair there, which is, uh, uh, was a little bit of whiplash just given my path and how quick that opportunity came. Uh, which is another thing you've got to, you've got to be really lucky and fortunate and timing plays a huge role in these opportunities. Um, and you never know when they're going to come. And, uh, you know, I'm, you're, you're obviously a person of great faith and, and, and I'm as well. And I, I really believe that there's a, there's a plan in place that we don't know about. We just got to be really diligent and do what we're, what we're supposed to do the task that's laid in front of us. And if you do that, opportunities arise that, that we could never imagine. That was certainly the case with Mississippi State. And then after six years there, uh, the opportunity here at Florida opened up, and it was it was just one I felt like I had to take advantage of. And now I've been here three years. It's hard to believe as well. And, and you know, two things about all that. One, as you went through your time at at, at, at uh, Baylor, and, and, and I think the crisis management piece is so relevant and today we say crisis management and that's probably not a great term you want to throw around but the the things that present themselves and 
in the world of college athletics on a daily basis. We're dealing with people. You've got 500-plus student-athletes, whatever, on most campuses, and you've got a couple hundred, 200, 300 employees, and you've got the part-time employees. You're, you're in the people business. Something's going to happen. And so you find yourself preparing for those moments. Scott, you are uniquely prepared um, through some, some unfortunate things that happened at Baylor and not having to go back and reflect on all of that. But talk about the, the preparation of, of preparing for those difficult moments. How did that moment prepare you for it? And, and as you've gone forward, how has that played out in your time in the chair? Well, you know, uh, you're right. I was in a really unique situation when uh, I, when I was at Baylor. The, they had the situation where the men's basketball player, one men's basketball player, uh, murdered a teammate, and um, you know, it was it it played out as a drama over several several weeks. Where first, you know, there was a missing persons with being the player, and then the police started to suspect the teammate was involved in some foul play, and and that turned into um, a lot of media scrutiny that led to. Uh, uncovering some NCAA violations that the basketball staff there had had been a part of and had kind of do some tried to do some stuff under the table, so it led to a bigger scandal and ended up, you know, really affecting that school in a significant way for a significant number of years. And I was I was there at the beginning of that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question, but for, uh, first I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw a little you know God works in mysterious ways kind of story here. So uh, it's this it's June of 2003 and uh, somehow. Uh, you're looking for uh, someone to be a, a media relations person there right. at UK, and, and we connect. And you and I have a great conversation. I'll never forget this. And literally the week after we had that conversation is when all this stuff at Baylor started coming up. And and um, I was suddenly Baylor was cast in a really unfavorable light, and and I was the spokesperson for the not just athletics. I ended up being the spokesperson for the whole university during this crisis. And and when you go through something like that, it's not just uh, the the media that we typically interact with in college athletics, meaning ESPN or Sports Illustrated, um, it was it was a national story. So we had Good Morning America, we had CNN, we had Fox News, we had you know it, it was mm-hmm. a different league than what I was accustomed to dealing with. Um, and so it because of that and the high profile nature, and it wasn't very pleasant looking. Uh, I went about a month without hearing anything from you or UK, and I thought, well, they have moved on from me. I am damaged goods because I'm, I'm in the middle of, of this thing. And um, somehow during that process, you brought me up for an interview, and and then the uh, the the whole thing after the course of the whole summer, the very end of that, the day that that the Baylor athletic director and basketball coach resigned, I come home that night, and and Mitch you called me and, and offered me a job to come to University of Kentucky. And I, I just, I've never felt like a higher power was looking after me more than I did that night and that summer. And, uh, and so that was a real blessing for me that, that you gave me that opportunity to come to UK. And, and at the time, it's funny, I thought that all of that, that we were going through was, was hurting my opportunities going forward. And, and in some weird way, because I think you saw the value of the experience, of, of going through crisis, I actually think it helped my opportunities. Um, but what you do learn through that is is a couple things. Number one, um, it's really important that you you have people around you that you can trust and who are who have the kind of character that you need. Because in that circumstance at Baylor, there were some people making decisions that were selfish, and and they weren't for the right reasons, and they were cutting corners, um, and and. On surface, they looked like they were doing things the right way, but in actuality, they were not. Uh, the second part is 
uh, once you realize you have an issue, you have to you have to get to the bottom and get to the truth as quickly as you can. And again, um, that didn't happen there. People uh, were uh, were covering up the truth for a long time, and there wasn't a lot of transparency. And um, as, at a public school, and you know this well at UK, uh, sometimes the open record laws and the transparency that we have to deal with uh, can make our jobs, we feel like it can make our jobs challenging. But in, a, in the other way, it really requires us and the people around us to act in a way where there's our integrity can't be questioned because we do have to do things out in the open. And there's a real benefit to that. Yep, and Baylor being a private school at that time, um, use their, their private school status in a way that I think ended up hurting them more because they, they tried to keep things under wraps. Um, the other thing is you have to, um, you have to deal with people as honestly as you can as you're going through the process. And by that, I mean, I had one of the things that was really important to me, I was dealing with these, these national media people during that whole process during that summer with this scandal. And, um, I realized early, I couldn't, I couldn't tell them what I hoped was happening. I could only tell them what I what I knew for sure to be the truth, mm-hmm. because once you start once you start presenting your hopes um, in a way where it comes across like you are saying this is the fact, if that's not the fact, your credibility goes away really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of times, you know, we deal with student athletes and we deal with coaches, as you know, and compliance issues and all these other things that go on in these campuses. Um, we really want our to know and to believe that our people are doing the right things all the time. And, 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 and the uh, human nature part of it is to portray your hope as what they actually did. Mm-hmm. And so many times you can't, you can't do that because you don't know exactly what's happened all the time. And until you actually know the facts, you need to be really careful on what you portray. And so I, I was able to come out of that in a way where, um, people knew that when, when I told them what, I, what was happening, they could believe it because I wasn't giving them necessarily just the party line. I was, I was shooting straight with them. I think that's really important in not just a crisis situation, obviously in any relationship to be as honest and straightforward as you can, um, from a foundational standpoint. So, uh, it's one of those things you hope you never go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you go through it, you, you realize it's really important to, try to be prepared and anticipate. It's hard to anticipate all those things, but to anticipate and be ready the next time something like that comes down the road. Speculation will get you hurt in a lot of ways. It's always good to be thoughtful and looking forward, but to be speculative about things that, that you need to be sure about and factual about is really, really important. And I think, Scott, you, you hit something that's really important. I think for young leaders coming up, um, I think sometimes young leaders try to avoid the fire. And I'm not saying you go looking for a fight. You don't have to go to fight every everything you're invited to, right? You know, but you do need to go through to be tested. And you were you were really tested through a really difficult fire, and and uh, you know you came through it. And I thought that was important. So when you didn't hear from me for a month, you learned two things. One, I'm watchful and all that, but I'm really slow. So I'm really slow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, but uh, and you learned that working for me. So it's, uh, but I do believe you have to get tested by the fire. And um, and when you do that, I think great leaders that are thoughtful, um, factual, um, diligent um, come through that and have an ability to. Uh, find their way to the next spot, which is exactly what you did. As you, as you moved from the chair at Mississippi State to Florida, you have, you have moved from a school, and, and I made one of those moves myself from Oregon State when I was athletic director at Oregon State to the University of Kentucky, 
when you move organizationally, you know, first off, it was your alma mater, which I think is unique. Um, and you left your alma mater, a place where you've got family roots, deep family roots. Um, and you go to the University of Florida, which has got a, a massive national brand um, in terms of our, our enterprise of college athletics. Talk about the similarities of what is you, the same, you know, the same things are the same there and what is different and, and how do those, how does the lens change for Scott Strickland in, in the, in the chair or does it? You know, that's, that's a great question. It, it's a, um, in so many ways, it's, it's a very similar job. I, initially, and, and I mentioned, I've been here three years, probably the first year, 18 months, um, it, it felt very similar but it was almost like I was, um, it's almost like, you know, so I'm right-handed. It was almost like I was having to learn to do everything left-handed for a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? So it all, it all looks the same, but, um, you know, these, any kind of organization, um, when you're, uh, responsible for the organization, you're in a leadership role, you learn how the, how the levers and the mechanisms work to impact and, and get the, the result that you want. Right. So, and I was at Mississippi State for a while, and I knew all the levers. I knew how I knew. You know, imagine yourself being in a cockpit of a certain plane, and you know what all the buttons do and all the, all the controls do for that plane. And then suddenly, shifting to a totally different airplane with a totally different instrumentation panel, the effect is the same. You're trying to get the, the thing up in the air, and you're trying to fly it at a, at a at a cruising altitude, but you you have totally different buttons you have to push, and totally different controls you have to maneuver, and it takes a while to learn all that. So. The initial part of changing roles, uh, even though it's the same job, this is a much larger department than, than from a staffing standpoint than Mississippi State. We, you know, Mississippi State, we have about 350 student athletes. We have well over 500 at Florida. I had about 160 staff at Mississippi State. We have about 370 wow. staff here at Florida. So just the, the scope of it, uh, of, of, the, of what we were dealing with, made it a lot different. You know, there's a, uh, the, one of the things that really concerned me is uh, leaving a place like Mississippi State, where obviously I'd, I'd grown up in uh, there in Mississippi. I'd gone to school there. I had deep roots and connections, as you mentioned. Um, I was I was a little concerned about coming to a place like Florida and wondering and, and worrying was I going to be able to um, have the credibility you need to lead a department of this size and of this scope and, and, and with all the success that's been here in the past, all the great work Jeremy Foley did before I got here. Mm-hmm. And that has been, I've been so incredibly pleasantly surprised at um, people are really respectful of this position and, and w- the way this department does things. And so I, I got a lot of credit before I ever did anything, which was, yeah. um, you know, it was just, I was fortunate from that standpoint that people were willing to give me a benefit of the doubt as a leader here, um, even though I had never, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't done anything yet. And and I think as a leader, a lot of times you want to do something so you 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 gain that credibility, and and um, that gave me an opportunity to kind of ease into it. And when you follow someone super successful like Jeremy Foley was here for twenty five years as AD. Um, I was really sensitive not to come in and act like suddenly I had all the answers. You know, Florida had been one of the top programs athletically for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like it would be disingenuous if I came in and, and suddenly act like, I, you know, I was going to show them how to run an athletic program because my job was to build off of the great work that had been done before me. So um, the fact that the, 
the fan base and the administration, the university um, was was willing to to kind of give me instant credibility and um, gave gave me confidence that I didn't have to rush in and try to do a lot of crazy things. To you know, I could I could learn about the place. That's a really hard thing, as you know, when you go to a new place, is learning the culture mm-hmm. and learning what's important and how you, how you you know you adapt your own style to that without losing who you are, what's important to you. And so I, um, I, I feel like we've been able to do that. And play, people here have been great. You know, it's interesting when you come from a place like Mississippi State, a lot of times because every, it is a smaller state, a smaller place, I think people may be a little more critical there because they feel like they, they, can, get a, they can get to you. They have a piece of you because it's, it's more intimate um, Florida is a much larger scale and scope, and and I don't quite feel that it's a it's a different level of I don't know what the right word is uh, less negativity sometimes mm-hmm. uh, more willing to give you a chance uh, and and again that may just be uh, because I was at a place where I grew up right and and they may you know you the longer you are somewhere the more you you build relationships and and but also the more you have a chance to disappoint people and so maybe it's things that you know for 20 years ago that I had nothing I didn't realize I had uh, had a relationship that wasn't helpful but sometimes you feel uh, a little more personal nature of the job this job here at Florida I feel like I have a chance to kind of uh, chart a, a different path and and it's it's been a really it's been a wonderful move and I really enjoyed my time here that's awesome I want to remind you to check out Kentucky Branded your one-stop shop for all things Kentucky Kentucky Branded is locally owned by two Kentucky natives, and new product arrives several times per week, so you always have something for the Kentucky lover in your life or yourself. Shop online at KentuckyBranded.com or in-store at the Fayette Plaza in Hamburg or inside the Fayette Mall. Kentucky Branded, your one-stop shop for all things Kentucky. Let's change gears a little bit. Yeah, I'm, on the, I'm on the men's basketball committee, and, and you have been, um, I think this is year number two for you on the CFP, the College Football Playoff Committee, correct? Is that number two? Yes, that's number correct. Two, and so I mean, we just briefly talk about your experience here. What's been, what have you enjoyed about that? And and I had we had Rob on, and he talked about the the what the week looked like and the travel and all that. And but just a, as a as a you know, you're at a place that has got an incredible um, expectation for participating in those kind of high level moments in college football. And now you're in the room and having an opportunity, and and we all know the, the uh, you know you have to leave the room when you're talking about your team, all those kinds of things. But talk about what the experience is like for you as a, as a that's one of those those really cool moments in in someone's career, and and obviously you've been fortunate to be in the room on one of those. What's that feel like? Uh, you know, it's, number one, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the um the staff there and the, and the, and the other committee members are first class people. They make it, they make it a fun experience. Um, you know, it, it, it is fun to be a part of something that, that you, that a lot of people care about and a lot of people, um, pay attention to. And when you're in that situation, I know you feel this from the basketball committee. Um, a lot of things that, that the outside world probably thinks you're, you're looking at as far as I want to take care of my school or I want to take the, care of the schools in my league when you're in that room you just feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility to get it right and to treat everybody as fairly as possible Absolutely. and um it's probably what a judge feels like when he walks into that courtroom right he just he, he's trying to get it right you're just trying to get it right and so uh there's there's a 
you just feel a sense of responsibility and, and, um, and you can tell everyone else in the room feels the same responsibility. And so, so collectively everybody, um, is on the same page as far as, you know, we may disagree on, on what right is, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure that, that we're, uh, protecting the integrity of the committee and the process. And, um, that's my biggest takeaway is, is just how hard people in that room work at trying to get it right. And doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. And, and I'm sure, you know, again, there's a lot of similarities probably with basketball. If <laughs> yeah. you guys have a much bigger tournament to, to field and you guys actually run the tournament, all we do in that room is we're selecting teams and ranking the top 25. But there's a, there's a real sense of duty as far as make sure we get it right. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really, it's, it is, it's a real privilege and it's an honor to be a part of something that is so, so impactful in the world of, of college athletics and, and two of the sports that are so integral into what we do in, in, the, in the world of college athletics. So as you look ahead, um, we're sort of uh, take a look at, at some things we would call uh, um, uh, issues or cultures or whatever. It, it, I, was, I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I've used this many times. This, this, I will never forget this lady, but she was she's probably in her 70s, and I got the Q&A section, and she raised her hand, and she, she said, uh, young man, what keeps you up at night? And, uh, and I, I think she was anticipating a win loss kind of thing if you, you know, but, uh, if you, if you lose to so-and-so, does that, that, buy, yeah, I don't like losing, but I gave her an answer is that there was, I thought a little more uniquely driven to what she was, wasn't what quite she was expecting. I, so I asked you a question in two or three fold, what keeps you up at night? And as it relates to that, you've been an administrator for 20 years plus I'm, you're in that zone. I'm, you know, trying to. Uh, do the math, but if you, if you, you know, a couple decades anyway, in this, in this enterprise of this wonderful thing, what's changed, what keeps you up at night? And if you had to put a little, a little ribbon around, uh, what you think is going on in the world of college athletics, what, what are your hopes, uh, dreams and those kinds of, so let's still put a ribbon around all that. What keeps you up at night and, and where do you, where do you want the thing? Where has it been and where's it going? You know, I think the, the keep you up at night thing is, you know, how are, who is making decisions uh, outside of, of our association that could impact our association, you know, our operation, our department, um, who could impact uh, our student athletes from a negative standpoint or our coaches, or our staff from a negative standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is compliance based, right? You know, do we have the right people monitoring and, and are we doing the right thing? You don't want to have a hiccup there. Um, there's a lot of financial stresses and I know people from the outside look at all the money and they think everybody's rolling in money. Um, you know, since we are nonprofits, every dime we spend, every dime, every dime we bring in, we're putting back into the operation. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a lot of stresses on the, uh, you know, demands from, uh, what we need to provide our student athletes, what we need to provide both our student athletes and our fans from a facility standpoint. Um, you know, are we doing the things that is going to make this sustainable so that not only this generation has an unbelievable experience, but we can provide it for future generations. And at the same time, provide that platform the university wants us to, to engage alumni and fans and general population, let them know uh, how special our universities are. So there's a lot of financial stresses that come with that. Um, And when I think about the future, I, I think a lot of it goes there. You know, college athletics in America is, is so unique. I was visiting with a student athlete or, or prospective student athlete from Europe, played soccer several years ago, and she was she was visiting 
several schools in the U.S. and asked her why she was curious or interested in coming to America to go to college. And she, she pointed out something that I had, you mentioned 20 years, it's close to 30 years in athletics for me. And I've been around this, this enterprise ever since I went to college. And it was the first time somebody really articulated this in a way that like this young lady did. And it kind of hit me like a thunderbolt. But in Europe and other parts of the country, when you get to the age where you're out of high school or whatever their version of high school is, and if you're an athlete, you have a decision to make at that point. If you want to continue to train at a high level, you go join a club, um, and and but your education is over. You're not getting educated anymore. You're just focusing on your sport. Um, if you if you don't want, if you're focused on education, you go to the university, but you're not playing sports. You are just studying. Mm-hmm. You can't combine that in any other country in the world. The only place that combines higher education with high level athletics is America. And that's why this young lady wanted to leave her home in Europe and come to America to go to school so she could continue competing at a high level and training at a high level and at the same time get a college-level degree. And I just I thought, wow, what a we don't tell that story very often. That is really fascinating. And then you start digging into the Olympic movement and how 85% of the U.S. Olympic team at the Rio Games in 2016 were a product of college athletics in America. And that doesn't even start to touch on all the international students like this young lady who come to our campuses, get trained, get educated, and go back and represent their home country, their own country mm-hmm. in the in the international competition. Um, you know, annually, U.S. colleges spend $5 billion on Olympic sports, $5 billion on Olympic mm-hmm. sports. So um, I worry about a lot of the conversation out there that tears down the value of what we're providing young people in the name of of a free enterprise or, or a professional type model, mm-hmm. um, because I don't think they value those conversations and are not valuing the unbelievable opportunity that that we're giving young people to get educated and to get something of value, a college degree, while competing at a high level in great facilities with great coaching and great support and great healthcare and all that kind of stuff that that these universities are, are giving, and so. That's, that's something that I really worry about the future of our enterprises is, uh, you know, Winston Churchill once said about democracy that it is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> and I think you could say the same about college athletics. It's not perfect. And we're, we, we, we get pointed, our imperfections get pointed out to us all the time, as you well know, Mitch. Yep. But it is it does so much good and provides um, such a great experience for so many young people that I, I, I really do worry that um, we're going to end up uh, taking something that, that is really good and uh, and outside forces are going to cause it to, to change dramatically in a way that's not going to uh, help near as many people. Well, and, and I, that, that is a concern as you look forward. You know, you sit there and say we've produced an incredible, and as you said, as you chronicled, 85% of the Olympians were were collegiate athletes and you sit there and you look at the wonderful, wonderful stories and the people that have competed world record holders, national champions, Olympic gold medal winners, those kind of things have occurred because of the incredible uh, foundation that college athletics has given uh, to that. And uh, I have much like you concerned that if uh, there's massive change in the landscape that all of a sudden uh, those young people disappear or they go, they become less prepared, less trained, and, and the opportunity that that young lady from Europe talked about, I uh, have to make a decision. Do I 
uh, do I go compete and lose the opportunity to be educated, or can I? Do I have just to go to to, to give up my athletic dream and go go to school? And I, I agree with you. I think that those are real concerns as we look down the the pipeline, and and many of the stresses you've talked about have been echoed by others, and in, in, in very similar ways. So, thanks for sharing that. As we look ahead, as you talked about generational things, I've I've sort of coined a I don't know if I've coined it or whatever. We're gonna, we're going to say we have. We're going to say it came out of out of Kentucky, where we, we've talked about a thing called generational leadership. And uh, and I've read a couple books that have been fascinating to me. One's The Vanishing American Adult by Ben Sass, And uh, it is a book that talks about the raising up of this generation and why they don't trust the leadership of our generations. And uh, so a variety of things, things that we have failed and things that he thinks we need to get better at. And there's a lot of truth to what he has to say. And so as we've done it, Scott, I've tried to, to say, okay, there's four or five things we want to be better at. If I ask Scott Strickland, you're raising up a generation, multiple gener, you know, you've got a young, this is generation Z is what they're calling this generation. We're, we're past X, we're past Y, we're, and now we're on to Z. Uh, and I don't know where we go after this. Is it double A, triple A? I got no <laughs> idea where we go. But we're we're in Generation Z. Scott Strickland is standing before thousands of Generation Zers. What advice has he given them? What What do you say to those people coming up? And and what do you look at what we've done in our generation, Scott? And and what is, should they do differently? And what should they take from the experiences of of you, our generation? And what are you teaching? Well, I, I think you said something very interesting, and I haven't read the book you're talking about, but my sense is this generation doesn't care what you say. They care about what you do, right? There's a sense of, of um, for one thing, they don't listen very well because they're, they we've connected them in so many different ways where you, they don't have to be face-to-face to connect to people, and they observe and they watch more than they take in interpersonal uh, communication face-to-face is, is my sense. So the whole point of standing in front of them and telling them something, that right there is going to be a challenge in a lot of ways because I do think you have to find a way to connect beyond that, beyond just words. Okay. You know, the and that's a real challenge, especially for, for old guys like myself uh, and you. You can say uh, me. I got it. I got it. <laughs> well, I, I, I figured I threw myself in there first. It was okay. Um, it's a huge challenge. Um you know, I have I have uh, I have teenage daughters, one who's a freshman in college and one who's still in high school. And um, you know, kids don't go on dates anymore; they go out as, as groups, right? And you know, they don't rush off the day. Neither of my daughters, the day they could go get their permit or their driver's license, they didn't race off and do it that day. They waited, uh, you know, several weeks before they got around to it. And in my day, and in your day, oh. and as soon as we turn driving age we were at the dmv absolutely right absolutely and 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 you know i i started asking people why that why is that the case and you know you and you and me to be with our buddies we had to be mobile Mm -hmm. Uh, we had to get in the car and go do it and that gave us freedom this generation they're connected with people through their phones and they don't have to be in front of them they don't have to be in a car and be in the same space they can be connected other ways and so there's not that drive to do it that way, which is just fascinating, um, mm-hmm. just the way Good technology point. is changing our lives and, and our society. Um, is that for the better? You know, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of times we'll be at dinner, uh, and uh, whether it's out at a restaurant or at home, and uh, at home, this is usually not a problem, but a lot of times we're in a restaurant, we all sit down and we do what, what a lot of Americans do. We're looking at our devices while we're sitting down and as we're getting settled in and we're checking last minute text or emails. And, um, my daughters have gotten to the point where they're saying everyone put their phone up. 
you know, I think when, you know, five years ago, the parents were the ones saying that. Mm -hmm. And my daughters are now the ones saying that. So there is a, there is a hunger there for inner interaction personally. Um, You know, we have probably as, as parents and as responsible adults have, have not um, emphasized that as much as we should. We've let uh, the, the technology kind of take over um, the babysitting or the, or the leadership, if you will. Um, I say all that to say that I think when you're dealing with young people today, you have to really connect with, find a way to connect with them. Mm-hmm. And the, I don't know that the message changes, you know, the message of, uh, you know, being selfless and putting others first and, and leading with love and, and not making it about you, uh, but making it about others. I think that message is pretty uh, universal and timeless. Um, but finding a way to deliver that message and then making sure your actions back it up and it's not just words, mm-hmm. uh, I think is really critical. I think it's absolutely true. And I think that the other piece that I've, uh, I've found to be, uh, I'll say, difficult to, to try and teach is a, a sense of resiliency and a sense of, of achievement. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we have a chance to teach young people to dream big dreams, chase big dreams, and be resilient as you go after it. And uh, those are those are things that, uh, among some of those things you talked about, uh, trying to find a way to be relational with them and uh, to, to meet them where they are um, is hard. I think that uh, some t- so many times as older folks, uh, we want them to meet us where we are. And I think it's important to try and find that, that middle ground and you meet where they are as well. Um, so thanks for that. We appreciate that. Um, just a couple of things we'll uh, – We'll, uh, we'll let you get going. We've got uh, you've got a lot of busy things on your calendar, and and I just appreciate you taking some time. Just we we close with a, a couple things, um, just five quick hitters, and they're real simple ones. One word answers, not hard. They're meant to be fun, not anything else. But uh, we'll hit real quick with your your favorite food. If you, if Scott Strickland is going out for a night on night of dinner, he has to pick one meal. Uh, what what's his food of choice? Well, I love it. I love pasta. So give me a good Italian meal. Um, and, and, uh, and good conversation. I'm happy. That's all right. All right. Cool. Favorite book. If you pick one up or you're asking, you know, you've got two or three things on your shelf, you're sitting down to read one or you're, you're given one for advice or you're given one to somebody to read. What's your favorite book or books? I'm going to, so I'll give you i I'll give you a, a, for pleasure. And then one that, that just kind of spoke to me at a time in my life that I still kind of refer to today, uh, for pleasure. Uh, there's a there's a Florida alum named Michael Connelly who's, who's a very successful uh, uh, crime fiction novelist uh-huh. who does a really good job with the genre and uh, he's he's got a lot of books out there and I've I've plowed through all of them now but I've really enjoyed reading Michael's stuff uh-huh. um, and he's got a TV show on Prime that's a spinoff of his books he's really a talented guy um, the the other side and you know when my kids were young they they watched. Uh, a series called the veggie tales that, that I know you're probably aware of. And, and the, the guy who created that guy named Phil Vischer, um, wrote a book because he ended up going bankrupt and, and losing the rights to all those characters created. But he, he wrote this unbelievable book. That's part business. Of, uh, it's a story of a business that failed and a story of, of how that tied into his spiritual life and what he learned from that process. And, and, and the end of the day he was, he realized he was driving what he thought the Lord wanted him to do in his life instead of actually stopping and listening and, and listening where, where God wanted him to go. And, and, and so I just, that's something that I think, uh, as leaders in high profile positions and we're all around type A personalities, we tend to, 
to want to push toward what we think uh, is right instead of stepping back and taking some time uh, in thoughtful prayer to think about, uh, to let, you know, the voice kind of tell us, um, you know, maybe a direction that we hadn't thought of and just be patient. What's and the name so of that I, book, Scott? What's the name of that one? It's called uh, Me, Myself, and Bob. Me, Myself, and Bob. Yeah, Bob is one of the characters on VeggieTales. Me, Myself, and Bob by Phil Vischer. That's awesome. It's been out about 10 years or so. But he's uh, the last few chapters are really impactful about him coming to a very painful time in his life and ending up because, because of the business failings and, uh, and through faith kind of ending up in a spot that allows him to, to move forward and, and, and actually learn a positive lesson through all that. Cool. Favorite hobby. So when you got some spare time and you get to do what you want to do, what is it? Um, I'm pretty simple. I, you know, I like to, I like to run, get some exercise in and I like to, to read those books and uh, spend time with my family, and I, I don't, uh, I don't do a whole lot beyond that. Cool stuff. If you had to put a plaque on the wall, has a phrase or some words to live by, what would it be? It's not about you. It's not about and, you. And the you is referring to me, but it's not <laughs> about it's not about you. That's uh, I think that's a lesson early in life that was hard for me to figure out, and and uh, uh, once once it got through, it uh, it has really been beneficial to understand that uh, we're here to help others. And it, no matter, no matter how much in these jobs, people want to pat us on the back and tell us how great we're, we are. Uh, if we win a game or our teams are doing well, at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's, uh, it's about others and, and, and serving those that we are around. That's true until you lose, and it is about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it works the same way. Just to, just, you can tell everybody, this isn't about me. That's right. That's right. Uh, last question. 10, 15 years down the road, where are you? That's a great question. I'll, I'll answer this with a, with a quote from uh, that book I told you about, the Phil Vischer book, because he, uh, uh, once he had lost everything, and had kind of gone through his faith journey. He came out on the other side of that, and he was talking to a publisher because he had an idea for a new book. And the publisher asked him a very similar question to what you just asked. Where do you want to be in five years is what he asked. And he said, uh, he got up on this whiteboard. He drew a dot in the middle, and drew, oh, he drew a big circle, and then he put a dot in the middle of the circle. And he said, uh, the circle represents God's will, and the dot is where I am. I would be right in the middle of God's will. So awesome. I don't know where that is. And, uh, but that's where I want to be in, in 10 or 15 years. I want to be wherever he needs me to be. That's awesome. That's good stuff. Well, partner, we appreciate you spending some time with us today. It's, uh, um, love working with you and being with you in the room with the other athletic directors in the SEC. We're, we're blessed to be in a great conference and, uh, working together in so many different ways. It's fun to compete. And, uh, I always know that when we, when we get together, it's, uh, number one, it's an honorable competition. And, and number two, it's, uh, it's good to see friends. So uh, we appreciate your friendship and all you do for college athletics and uh, and hope you have the best of years in 19 and 20 and moving forward and uh, look forward to seeing you somewhere down the path. So on behalf of the uh, University of Kentucky and the podcast and our listeners, we appreciate you. Mitch, I want to say for your listeners too that I've done this for a long time and there's uh, there's only a handful of people that I can look back and say have really impacted my life in a significant way, my career in a significant way and my life. And, uh, you're at the top of that list. Uh, the time that the opportunity you gave me to be at Kentucky with you and, and the five years that I was able to spend there with you. And then, uh, the mentor you've been to me in the time since I've left there, I, I value it and I treasure it. And, uh, you are such a, uh, 
an important part of not just the University of Kentucky, but the SEC and college athletics in general. And, and I'm, it's a great blessing that I call you a, a friend and, and a, a colleague and, and a mentor. So thanks for all you've been to me and, and what you continue to do there at Kentucky. Well, thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. We will look forward to seeing you soon and take care, my friend, and all the best. Thank Thanks, you, man. Thanks for being with us today on the podcast. All the best to our listeners. Go Cats.